Welcome to Church 213. We're so glad you're listening to our sermon series on 1 Peter titled A Cautious Crossing. The book of 1 Peter was an important letter to first century believers, encouraging them on how to carefully influence and impact their culture. This message is still relevant today as we Christians carefully make the cautious crossing toward heaven. Join us on our journey through this fantastic book. The title of the message this morning is this, The Heat Is On. The heat is on. You know, last week was Memorial Day weekend. It's really not the official start of summer. It's the unofficial start of summer. But it is the official start of grilling season. Can I get a witness? And so I think this needs to be said up front. Okay? Really labored over how I'm going to say this. And there's really no other way to say it. Church, you just need to know it. It's not a sin to have sauce on your chin. Not a sin to have sauce on your chin. It's grilling season. And so as you think about grilling, when you apply good sauce to something on the grill, it's typically, and I know this because I sought wise counsel, I called Chuck East. I'm like, hey, you're a professional barbecuer. Validate this claim. He said, yeah, you're right, PR. It's, it's best to apply sauce toward the end of the grilling process because it gives just enough time in the heat in order to enhance the flavor of the meat. But here's the thing that I want to point out as we dig out our text in this series that we've been in over the past seven weeks called A Cautious Crossing, and it's this. You have to be able to toil and press on within the heat if you want what's on the grill to become a benefit to other people. When you raise that lid and that heat boils out and you've got the sauce in your hand, you've got to press on through to the other side if you want to apply what you have in order to benefit other people. The saying is, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. And so with that idea in mind, we roll up on the book of 1 Peter. We roll on the book of 1 Peter, and what this letter is, it's, it's a letter to believers who are in the heat of, the, of, of, of their Christianity in the, in, the, in the kitchen of a non-Christian culture because they're learning how to function for the Father when their faith is under fire. It could be written to us here in 2023. Over the past six weeks, we've been walking verse by verse learning how believers can influence a Roman culture through Christ-centered relationships with authority, with Christ-centered relationships inside the home, Christ-centered relationships inside the family. We talked about that last week. What Peter does today is he turns this unity, this power that we have, this sympathy, this, this teamwork, this harmony, he turns it to the outside of these walls. He's writing to this group of people how to have a relationship with people outside the faith. And the recipients of this letter, I need to remind you, they weren't foreign missionaries. I'm not sure if you realize this, but America is the fourth largest mission field on the planet. There are, there are Ch China sending missionaries to America. God have mercy on us. But these people that were living right here in 1 Peter, these, these people, they, they weren't 
outside missionaries. They weren't foreign missionaries to Cappadocia and Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia and Asia. No, these were local men and women. These were local families who were likely to have come to know Christ and they were called to live out their, uh, their new identity in Christ around people that knew them before they knew Christ. That, that's a pressure cooker scenario, isn't it? To be called to live out your faith around people that knew you before BC, before Christ. Sometimes the community that you grew up in is the hardest mission field, isn't it? Here's why, because the heat is so personal. You can't fake living for Christ around people who knew you before, before Christ. You can't fake living out Christ for people that knew you when you were living in the world. It's real. But here's what Peter's trying to tell us. It is the best proving ground for authentic Christianity. It's the best proving ground. These first century believers were, were, were facing pressure from their community to turn their back on Jesus because they were, they were living it out and so they were being treated unfairly. They were being judged unjustly. They were being, they were being given un, uh, unearned reputation. And Peter steps right into that. That's why the book of 1 Peter is so special because it could have been written for us even today. Because so many of us look around and go, man, I, I am being called to bloom where I'm planted. How do I actually do that? How does a Christian face the heat from people outside the church and still stand with hearts undivided by the lures of this world for the life-saving, life-changing, life-giving Son of God, Jesus. How do we do it? The text rolls right into that. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Last week, guess what? We left off on verse 12. We're picking up this week in verse 13. So let's stand together. How do we do it? How do we take this love to the streets? 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read uh, the rest of chapter 3. And then next week, we're going to start in chapter 4. Verse 13. Got it on the screen for you, <clears throat> if you need it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. The Word of God for the people of God says this. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ as Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this, catch this church, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sin once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamations to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it for a few days, that is, eight people were saved through the water. The kindness of the Lord leads to repentance, church. 61 years for Richard Evans. God is patient and God is kind, but he's just and he's loving to God be the glory. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt of the body, but the pledge of good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, and subject to Him. You guys can be seated. Here's what you need to know, some things. Hey, if we're going to... If we're going to face the heat from people outside the church and still stand with hearts undivided from the lures of this world, here's some things to hang on to from the text. It's this. Suffering while doing good brings the peace of God. This is a paradox. God's economy of the math is just different. Suffering brings good. Suffering brings peace. Suffering while doing good brings the peace of God what Peter is telling these people is like suffering's coming, but it's going to bring peace. Look at verse 13. Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what's good? But even if you, even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. Verse 13 has this question mark there. It's kind of a rhetorical question. What Peter's doing is he's, he's pointing out this reality that should make sense, and it's this. If you follow the instruction manual of our Creator and live according to God's standards, bad things are much less likely to happen and good things are more likely to happen. Newsflash, duh. Theoretic, theor, the, uh, theoretically, the more passion you have for God's ways, the straighter your way seems to go. Things just seem to work out. If you want God to work with you, praise God, you got to allow Him to walk with you. The Bible says you reap what you sow. And Peter's saying typically when those outside the church take notice of the purity of the Christian, it will rob them the opportunity to hold something over your testimony. But then he says that's typically what you would expect. And typically that will happen. But he says in verse 14, but even if... It doesn't. Even if they do come against you, which is very possible because we're living in a hostile world that's hostile to the good news, the light of men. People, people pursue darkness rather than light. And so light bearers, they turn their face from because their eyes are blind in spiritual darkness. And so we're kind of caught up in that. He's saying, so it's even possible that even while you do good, you're still going to face things because of where we're living, still they can't really persecute you in full honesty. It might happen, but it has no weight because the accusations and the, and the conversations have no merit. It's like, it's like someone shooting you with a slingshot with a cotton ball. You're done. Like, okay, bring it. It's a cotton ball. 
has no substance. The motion looks dangerous, but the consequences bring peace. It's like, okay, whatever. That's what he's saying. So the question is, what, what kind of living do we have to put forth to, to give us this real peace, knowing God's blessings are on you no matter what you're doing? It's when you're living in that, in that pure place. He says, even if, Peter says, in the midst of suffering for doing what is right, you're still going to be intimidated from running from, from your beliefs, belief system. There's, there's got to be pressure on you. And he's saying, don't you run. Because you're being chased by a cotton ball. Don't go anywhere. Don't run from the heat that comes from doing good. Church, it's, it's always easier to have peace when your conscience is clear, isn't it? You just sleep well at night. Peace, peace has, has been said it's a bridge. And, and on the two sides of this bridge are truth and righteousness. So you must have truth and righteousness if you're going to have peace in the midst of those that are trying to stain your testimony because of the light that's shining in you. It's just a cotton ball. Don't create opportunities for ammunition for your testimony because you'll have peace there. Psalm 37, 5 through 15 is so comforting for, for Christians who are living in this type of culture. It says, commit your way to the Lord, trust Him, and He will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. Just sit in it. Let Him work. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for Him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in His way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Y'all, it's so easy to look at those that are prospering by ill-gotten gain and be frustrated and say, God, that's not fair. Don't you forget God is outside of time and space and He says, justice is mine. You just serve me. You just serve me and you wait patiently. You keep pursuing what's good and you leave them up to me. Refrain from anger. Give up your rage. Don't be agitated. It can only bring harm for evildoers will be destroyed. But those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while. A little while. And the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. The wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at him because he sees that his day is coming. And the wicked have drawn their sword and strung their bow to bring down the poor and needy and to slaughter those whose way is upright. Let me read verse 15 to you because it really sums it up. Their sword will enter their own hearts and their bows will be broken. Say the course. Peter's, Peter's asking this rhetorical question. Who is there that can really make your life difficult when you're zealous for what is good? He's like, nobody in the long run. Because goodness takes the power out of a slanderous tongue. The more you look like Jesus, the less junk they have to throw your way. The less they can say about you. 
He uses the word good and zealous. Let's break this down. Good and zealous is used here because it means living with enthusiasm, blamelessly in the presence of others. I love that. Living with enthusiasm, blamelessly in the presence of others. You think of goodness. You think of words like generous. You think of words like unselfish. You think of words like kind, gentle, thoughtfulness. You think about the word zealous. It just means all in, sold out. And what he's saying is this type of life has a way of restraining, tying up those that are the foes of the godly. That type of living will make your point. Think about this. How, how are you known to other people? For those outside the church looking at you that wears the label of, of blood-bought, redeemed as, as a believer, what do they say? When your family and friends say your name at the reunion, what comes to their mind? And does it attract them to the Lord? Or does it turn them from the Lord? We're to bring peace. I was in chains having lunch. Listen, I just don't preach it. I live it, okay? I ain't seeing to have sauce in your chin. I was having lunch at Shane's Rib Shack. And as I'm waiting there for, for who I'm having lunch with, I look on the wall, the one in Covington, it has the history of Shane's Rib Shack. And I begin to kind of just look at those pictures and read the business model and, and what Shane is doing in the bios. He's giving credit to his granddad who he called him Big Dad. That's why the number one is like the Big Dad sandwich, okay? Named after his granddaddy. And it Shane's on the wall. It says Big Dad taught him two life lessons that shaped his business model. It said Shane's Big Dad told him this. He said, Shane, don't ever forget, do what you love and do it better than anybody else. That's just zealous. We look as one of the followers of Christ. One of, the, one of the 12 was Simon the Zealot. Now, Christ redeemed that enthusiasm because a zealot was a, a military opposition and they were, they were, they were going to die and they were going to rebel to remove Rome, to usher in the kingdom. That's why he was ready to jump on the Jesus bandwagon because he thought Jesus was going to bring in an army and they were going to overthrow the Romans and he wanted some of that. You look at Peter. I mean, I think Peter picked up something from the zealot because in the garden, Peter takes out a sword and slides. What is Peter doing with a sword? You got to be careful you hang out with. That's what I'm trying to say. What Jesus is doing is, is he's trying to usher in a new enthusiasm. And so he changes what he's zealous for. The other quote is on the wall. It talks about goodness. Big Dad said this, you only get one reputation in life, so you better make the most of it. And so those two quotes on that wall, as I've had this message on my mind, there it is. It's, it's goodness and it's being zealous. Y'all write this down. It's on your sermon guide there. A hunger for what is good brings peace to your life, even when there is heat of intimidation. A hunger for what is good brings peace to your life, even when there is heat of intimidation. We were on the edge of the Maruka River in 2015 in Guyana. 
And we were loading our luggage up, going to a different place. We were doing some mission work, and we were some, with some missionaries in Trinidad and Tobago. And as we, as we loaded the boat to go our separate ways, there was just a heaviness there because I, I, I knew what he was thinking, and he knew what I was thinking. It was this, I'll never see you again, likely, on this side of eternity. And as that older missionary loaded his boat, and grabbed my luggage and shook my hand. He just shook my hand. He said, Pastor, live a, live a clean life. Of all the things he could have left me with, that's what he said. Live a clean life. And then off into the jungle he went. What Peter is saying is when we live according to the character and the conduct of Christ, people notice and it makes a difference in our goodness. Oh, the peace we have in our hearts. Look at verse 15. He goes on. Something else. Suffering for no reason gives reason for an authentic conversation. Or suffering for no reason gives you an authentic reason to talk about God. And this is powerful. Suffering for no reason gives you a, a, an authentic reason to talk about the Lord. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts regard Christ as Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. What Peter's saying is suffering is coming. There are times where God's will is for us to suffer. And one of the outcomes of that suffering, the uncomfortability of life and the culture, is so that we can have something to talk about. Tell me how good God is. Well, let me tell you about what he has done, right? 1 Peter 3.15 is one of the most popular verses in the New Testament. Often it's paraphrased as this, always be ready to defend what you believe. What Peter is saying, if you look at, if you look at verse 15 and verse 16, those two, those two emerge together. What Peter is not saying is, hey, you need to fight it out. And you need to, 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 to dispute about why you're a Christian. You don't believe? Okay, meet me in the parking lot. I'm going to show you, Jesus, Jesus loves you, but I'm still trying. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the point of this is that that kind of attitude is opposite of what he's saying. Peter uses the phrase, make a defense, not get defensive. He's saying make a defense, make an argument. The Greek word for defense is apologia. It's where we get our English word apologetics or apology. It means to advocate clearly and logically for something. If you really believe in something, you're going to advocate for it. And you're going to come up with the facts, right? This is why you should eat here. This is why you should go to see this movie. This is why you should shop here. This is why you should not shop at Conyers Walmart. Okay, I, 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 give, you, I give you all of these def, de, defensive, argumentative facts. 
to advocate clearly and logically for something. See, listen, God never intended our faith to be this pie in the sky type of thing, just believing it for no reason. It's not a blind faith. Some of the greatest theologians were atheists and won over by logic and reason because it only makes sense. And so I want you to know that I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm living the, the life for Christ to live a pure life, not because it's a crutch in a crisis. My, my belief in Christ is not a crutch in a crisis. I don't believe the Bible because I don't have anything better to believe when I'm confused. I believe in the Bible because these words are where I have found life and life to the full. It's believable. There's eyewitnesses to it. There's life change through it. Nothing else can create this on this side of heaven. Open your Bibles with me. Let's go to John 21. I don't have it on the screen. And, uh, and so if you need to kind of look on somebody else, that's okay. John 21. Just love it when God puts pieces together. This text was in my notes and was read yesterday in a message it was such confirmation. John 21, starting in verse 24. John 21, starting in verse 24. Each disciple wrote their gospel for different reasons from a different angle, perspective. It was all the same theme, but they approached it differently. Like if you and I were telling the same story using the same facts, but we brought our own um, personality and flair into it. You could look at the Gospels like that. So John's purpose is to, is to prove that Jesus was God. He was deity. And so he writes these things. And then in the very end, he says this, verse 24, this is the disciple who testify, testifies to these things and, and who wrote them down. Like, this is real stuff. We know that, this, that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did. Watch, if, if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. You can, you can believe this. It has even significant verification in the historical record. There's more evidence that Jesus lived and died and rose again than, than George Washington ever existed. Write this down. A Christian should be able to make a rational, logical case for the existence of our hope in God. Make a defense. And y'all, we can. We can. Hands down, Christian theism offers the clearest explanation of why there's uniqueness in humanity, why there's creative design in nature, why there is misery, why there is suffering, why there is pain, why there is good, and why there is evil. Why is there something rather than nothing? The Word of God answers that question. The biblical worldview, listen, is the most rationally compelling, existentially engaging source of objective truth of reality anywhere. But what, what's beautiful about what Peter's saying is not about the 
scientific defense. It's like all that stuff is absolutely true. It's a, you need to, we need to be equipped in our tool bag for those sort of things. But what Peter is saying here is that unjust suffering, despite doing all the right things, is also a powerful tool in defending what we believe is real. You know what? You might can have all the, the, the theology to apply it. You might can have all the, the physics that, you know, power squared. That's not true. Power round, cornbread squared, okay? You, you, might, you might know all this stuff, but nothing is more powerful than a testimony of God's faithfulness. You're on the witness stand of it, a powerful tool. Peter's reminding us today that, that these, these things that believers are saying about you, in this season of pain and suffering that you're going through for no reason, because of the light you shine, this moment of grief that just came out of nowhere, it has gospel purpose. It has gospel purpose, and you ought to praise God for it. Because it gives us a better defense on the witness stand before that family reunion. Gives you that testimony that you stand before the community. Anybody can claim how much they love Jesus when life is going good. Amen. But you listen to me sooner or later. They will lose enough to become humble enough to hunger and thirst for something that's real. What Peter wants these believers to do when that happens is the same thing that he wants us to be when that happens. And that's just simply ready. Just ready. Because suffering prepares us for praise. Amen. Suffering will prepare you for praise with the helmet of salvation guarded by the breastplate of righteousness wrapped up in the belt of truth on move with the gospel of peace and swinging the sword of the Spirit. The unbeliever does not enjoy this kind of hope. And so sooner or later, they're going to be thirsty for it. And we got to be ready. Because what happened, the culture that we're facing is connected to a shallow source. An empty way of life, a spiritual darkness. The way the Bible describes it. But a Christian hope, listen, it ought to be so real. It ought to be so tender. It ought to be so available that a non-Christian is going to be puzzled by it and they're going to ask for an explanation. What in the world is wrong with you? How can you have such hope in the midst of your pain? How can you have such, such, such peace in the middle of your weeping? Because it's in the heat of the trials that what you're holding on to is revealed to that person that's searching for peace. It's, it's, it's in the heat of life's greatest storms that people outside the church begin to look on their own insecurities and they begin to look on their own sandy foundations and they start asking the hard questions. Life will make you ask a hard question, won't it? And it's in that moment that you know it's just a matter of time before everybody has their life rocked. And they begin to look around. And in those moments, a person's heart can become tender to the things of God when they realize that living for the weekend has worn out his welcome. Y'all with me? And Peter's telling me and he's telling you, we gotta be ready. You be ready and you be steady 
to share Christ with those people around you that come to the crashing reality that living life on their own terms and their own time and their own talents has done nothing more than lead them to another dead-end road. He's like, you got to be ready with a living hope, being able to defend the goodness of God because suffering for no reason gives you an authentic reason to talk about God. Greatest, one of the greatest Baptist pastors Charles Spurgeon said it like this, I've learned to kiss, kiss, I've learned to kiss the waves that's thrown me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the waves that thrown me against the rock of ages. Matthew 7 says this. These are the words of Jesus. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell And the rivers rose and the winds blew and it pounded that house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundations were on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act will be like a foolish man. These two men weren't foolish. Amen. Who built his house on the sand And the rain fell, and the rivers rose, and the winds blew, and it pounded that house, and it collapsed, and it collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished by his teaching. And then it goes on to say, they were astonished because they're like, man, that guy speaks with authority. I've never heard anything like it. And I love what Peter does. It's because he takes that idea and he rolls right into the end of chapter 3. And it's this. Suffering is possible when you know Christ is already victorious. He, he He closes this out. Now, when they would have opened this letter, it wouldn't have been in verse and chapter. There were breaks in it, but it's just one letter. And so they're reading it in sections, and you know they're reading and they're contemplating, just kind of looking it over. And he closes this text by reminding these believers why they have to keep going. It's because Christ has already won the greatest victory. And he's drawing their minds to that. Victory. That's what 18 and 22 is talking about. For Christ also suffered for sin once and for all. The righteous For the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Thank the Lord. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he also went. This gets deep and we're going to dig it out. I love it. In which he also went and made proclamations to the spirit in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is eight people, We're saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. But the pledge of the good conscience toward God through the the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to Him. It's exactly what Jesus said and exactly how they responded to Him in Matthew. What authority is this? And Peter's like... Again, he has all authority. It's victory. And can you imagine Peter writing this? 
I, I don't know if he's jumping up and down when he's writing. You ever, you know, wrote something and just get so excited, you got to push away. There's times where in my office and I'd read something, I'd start clapping. I know Dom and Joe probably think I've lost it. I'm like, that is so good. Victory is what Peter's saying. I don't know, maybe he's weeping. Maybe the tears are falling on the parchment paper as he's writing this. This is a real man writing real stuff for the first time. We're reading it. We just overlook God's Word. It just gets complacent and we get comfortable with it. Put yourself here. Not only was it written for the first time one time, it was read for the first time one time. And so you know there's got to be victory. It's powerful stuff for those Suffering in Jesus' name. Matthew 10, go back. Matthew 10, 26 says, Therefore, won't you be afraid of them, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. God sees. What I tell you in the dark, you speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear, fear him who's, who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And then he softens it. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs on your head have all been counted, except for Casey. <laughs> so don't you be afraid. You're worth so much more than the sparrows. That's my brother. I love him over there. What a sweet reminder. What a sweet reminder. And Peter's reminding them and us that, hey, listen, we can face what we don't understand. We can keep going when the heat is on, even though we can't see it, because Christ has overcome the greatest fight we could ever be in. It's the fight for the soul. That's what he has victory in. And this life, listen, is going to attack your happiness. It's going to try to rob your joy. Amen? It is going to steal your physical and financial security. It's going to eat you up with cancer. It's going to vandalize your faith distort your family, and take your innocence. But if your purpose and your hope and salvation is rooted in Christ, you can say, let it rain. Oh, death, where is your sting? Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh. Peter's reminding them that Jesus actually physically died. Died in the flesh. It happened. There's this theory out there that, that the cross was really hot and icky. Jesus just passed out. And so when they took him down off the cross and they put him into a cool, shaded tomb, he snapped out of it and unwrapped himself, rolled out a stone, and snuck out. That is ridiculous. He died. Those Romans made sure he was dead. They were professional killers. They did crucifixions for a living. And the scripture says that the criminal that were on the left and right, they were pushing themselves up on the nails 
to, to lift their body off of their, their chest cavity so they could get breath. And so the way that they would hasten crucifixion and death is they would break their legs so they had nothing to push up on and they would suffocate. And it was coming close to the end. Sabbath was there. And so they began to break the legs. But when they looked at Jesus, he was already dead. He had already committed his spirit. But just to make sure and to fulfill the prophecy, they stuck him in the side real quick because sticking someone in the side with a spear is faster than hammering through the leg bones of a human. So they grabbed a spear just to make sure and they stuck him in the side and there was no re- He was dead physically. And at that moment of death, Christ faced the full wrath and burden for sinners for me and you. Christ felt the humanly incomprehensible sense of alienation from the Father while God's full wrath and the burden of our past and our present and our future iniquities were placed on Him. He faced divine judgment so we didn't have to. And in His death for sin and resurrection to eternal glory, Christ beat the greatest enemy there ever was. Death. And he was ready to rub it in the devil's face. Look at verse 19. This is good. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You look at the Greek, it says he, uh, he was still existing in the Spirit. He's always existed. In which, in that state, he also went and made proclamations to the Spirit in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, just a few people were saved through the water. What Peter's doing right here. Again, he's yelling victory. When, 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 these, when these believers were reading this letter, they needed reminding that while Christ's body was lifeless, decaying in the tomb, he was not dead and inactive. God's not dead. So he's not done. He's never finished. Amen? When you can't see his hand, trust his heart. He's working and he's moving. See, Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born of the flesh. We do when we're conceived, not Christ. John 1 says that the Bible says he took on the form of flesh and he dwelt among us. That in the beginning was the expression of God. And that God was, was, that the expression of God was God and was with God. It was the second person of the Trinity, which means that Jesus is eternal. He's always existed as the invisible part of the second part of the, 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 the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the Father that's glorified. It's the Son that makes the glorification in us possible. And it's the Spirit that draws us into the repentance and pushes our heart to the Father. It's a symbol of all that God has done. And what this scripture says, and we're almost finished, I want you, I want you to catch it. That in this eternal state of existence, Jesus went to proclaim victory to the spirits that have been locked away since the time of Noah. Proclamation. 
means an announcement in a particular location. He went somewhere. In, in, that, in that spiritual state, he, he, he perp- on purpose went to an actual place to make a triumphant announcement to the captive beings before he arose on the third day. He just wasn't napping. He was working. He was kicking tail and taking names later. So the question is, who are these spirits? We have to look at the context. You have to look at the words. They're not humans here. This isn't a second chance for gospel redemption. It wasn't, going, it wasn't evangelizing lost people. That's, a, that's not the, the word. That's not what he's talking about. That word is soul. Peter didn't use that word. He used the Greek word for spirit that in every time it's used, it refers to angelic beings which makes sense because Peter's talking about in the days of Noah. What's going on in the days of Noah? What did Jesus do? He went to a holding place, a bottomless pit. It just means an abyss with no end. Can you imagine falling forever? How much insecurity is there when you fall, right? That fear. That's just part of the torture of being uh, 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 of being in hell, being separated from God. It's, a, it's the forever feeling of insecurity, of just a bottom, being trapped in a bottomless descent. So what are they doing there? Well, that, he went to that holding place. That, that place was holding the most vile and the most disgusting demons who had taken part, catch this, in distorting the human race when they begin to cohabitate with women in Satan's failed attempt to corrupt human identity. In the beginning, God created man and woman, male and female. He created them in his image. And Satan has been trying to distort that image. And these were those certain fallen angels who had left their angelic domain and crossed the line into sexual sin, which is the reason earth was flooded because these wicked demon Possessed men produced a generation of children that was nothing but corrupt on the inside and outside needing to be destroyed. And man, what a wake-up call for the church. God cannot sit idle and allow human identity to be distorted. He can't. Are y'all with me? It's just hard preaching, okay? But listen, Satan can't sit back and not pervert identity either. We're living in Rome. In America, we, we have reserved an entire month to celebrate and endorse identity confusion. God have mercy on us. It's always been the, it's always been the motive of the enemy to try to stop our true identity from being restored. That's why Jesus was born in the flesh. We live in the flesh and what happened? What, what, what is Jesus doing to these spirits that were distorting the image who God had to lock away into the end? See, ever since the fall of Satan and his demons, there's been angelic forces of good and evil. Job 1 and 2, Daniel 10, 13, Zechariah 3, Ephesians 6, Revelation 12 and 16. And after the devil's apparent victory in inducing Adam and even, uh, Eve to fall into sin... God promised to the evil one himself that he would be destroyed by the Messiah child and he would grow up and he would triumph with a crushing victory. That's Genesis 3.15. 
And so Satan therefore sought to prevent this by genocide of the Jews, a destruction of the Messianic line itself during the time of Joash. That didn't work. And so he attempted to kill the infant Messiah by the hands of Herod. That didn't work either. Are y'all with me? And when that failed, Satan used religion and a mob to nail him to a tree. And these leaders even saw to it that the stone was rolled over so that nobody could steal his body. That didn't work either. And so these demons at this point were celebrating the victory when they saw the body of Christ pierced and wrapped and buried. But I'm going to tell you right now, boy, did they get a wake-up call. When Jesus shocked him, he rolled into the bottomless holding cell very alive. And all authority of heaven and on earth and under the earth with the blood-bought keys of victory for me and for you. I don't know. Maybe kick the door in. I don't, I don't know what it looked like. But you know, it must have been amazing. And Peter's writing to these people. He's like, don't you forget when you're suffering for no reason, God has the victory. He wanted these believers facing the heat in Pontus, in Galatia, in Bithia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, that they would face at the hands of lost people. And he wanted them to know it has no hold on you because you've been dipped, you've been immersed, you've been placed in God's hand in Christ forever. So you get after it in Jesus' name. We have been vindicated so I'm saying bring the heat. He is Lord indeed. And so a prayer that I pray that I just want to leave you with this on your sermon guide as I end is simply this. Lord, I pray the fire within me be greater than the fires around me. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Man, that was fun. <clears throat> because it's real life for the believer. And so as our praise team comes, what I simply want to do is, <clears throat> is open up a, a moment of invitation. And here's what I want to invite you to do. Just ask yourself the question, what am I going to do with Jesus? Parker said something during the invitation at the top yesterday that I'm about to steal. And he talked about an altar. And he said an altar, if you look in the Old Testament, an altar, altar is just a rubble place that you offer sacrifices. And so often we use this place as an altar. And the beauty is the altar, you can bring those struggles, you can bring those heartaches, you can bring the worst this life has to offer and has applied. And you can lay it before the Lord and you can put praise on top of that as an altar. And so I invite you, maybe you don't have any major things, but maybe you simply just want to come and kneel and just thank the Lord for His goodness. To apply your praise at a location.
The neat thing about an invitation is it takes what God has put on your heart and it moves it to your feet. You begin to move. You begin just to let the Word of the Lord work. So if you don't have a relationship with Christ, I'm saying you bring your lostness to the altar and you build an altar of praise on top of that. And you make a stand for the Lord in the midst of the suffering and just say, Lord, I can't do this without you. I don't want to give you lip service. I want to be all in. I want to suffer with peace. I want to suffer with purpose. And I want to suffer in the victory of what you've done for me. So don't stay in your lostness today. You've heard the glory of God through the testimony of two men. You've seen the praise of his people. Maybe like pastor, I'm a spiritual orphan. I mean, I, 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 I know what I believe, but I don't have a church family. And what does that look like for me? How do I become a partner in this ministry? I'd love to have that conversation with you. Maybe you've already gone through our partnership class and you want to come down front this morning and make that official and let you be introduced. I don't know, whatever God wants to do in your life. Maybe you've made a decision for Christ recently and you want to come tell me about it and say, Pastor, I need to, don't drain the pool today, please. I need to get baptized next week. We, I promise we'll get that on the calendar. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. God, you're good to us. Because you shape us and use us in the midst of suffering. Lord, suffering is not the end all. It is giving us a story to tell. A rooftop to stand on. And a voice to shout with. Lord, I know suffering is real. Father, I pray for those that are suffering in here. For your name's sake. God, you would lift them up on eagle's wings. Lord, you would be their buckle and their shield. You would be their strong tower. Lord, they would praise you in the midst of the storm. And God, you would count the hairs on your head and you would hold the tears that they cry in the bottle, as your word says. And you would help them to proclaim victory in the midst of the heat, Lord. So that the world on the outside of this place will see your goodness and they will glorify you in heaven because you're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all. God, if you, can, if you can make your way through the spirit of your son to the bottomless pit, Lord, I'm trusting you to work into the stone-cold hearts of the people around us, maybe even in some people in here this morning. So, God, I pray that there would be moments of surrender at this altar. and We would promise to give you the praise, honor, and glory for it. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. I'm going to invite Pastor Joe to come stand here. What are you going to do with Jesus?